Yesterday, we began our discussion of uh, Tantra by looking at uh, what the word Tantra means. And we saw that it has uh, two meanings from the root to stretch out. Uh, the first level is, uh, or the first meaning, is referring to something that stretches out as a continuum, no beginning and no end. And this can be understood on a basis, path, and resultant level. So on the basis level, it's referring to our Buddha nature factors. On the resultant level, it's referring to enlightenment, the bodies of a Buddha. Both of these uh, go on with no beginning and no end. And uh, the uh, uh, basis level will give rise to samsara if we don't do anything about it. So that's uncontrollably recurring rebirth with all the various sufferings and causes for suffering. But if we get rid of those causes of suffering, then from Buddha nature, we can uh, um, derive or attain the enlightened state of a Buddha. And in order to make that transition, we have to follow the full path of uh, the teachings, the Dharma. And to do this, what we want to generate out of these Buddha nature factors are these various deities, these uh, so-called Buddha figures that we work with in Tantra. And we use our uh, practices with these uh, Buddha figures as a uh, pathway to attain enlightenment. And the way that we do that is with the second meaning of the word Tantra, which are the strings of a loom. So we weave onto the various uh, arms, legs, faces, etc. of these figures all the realizations of the Sutra path. And we have renunciation. In other words, we reject, we're completely bored with, and don't want our Buddha nature factors to give rise over and over again to more uncontrollably recurring rebirth, samsara. So we need renunciation of that. And we need bodhicitta to aim at our not yet happening enlightenment which can happen on the basis of these Buddha nature factors. So it's not happening yet, but it can happen. And the only way that it is possible for the various practices to bring about that result is because of the voidness of cause and effect. That cause and effect can only be related to each other. In other words, causes can bring about an effect only if they do not exist independently, self-established by themselves. If they were, it would be like they were encapsulated in plastic and one couldn't bring about the other. So they are dependent on each other. So, of course, we need a much deeper, more profound understanding of voidness than just what I explained. However, in order to get the general idea of Tantra, it's enough to realize that cause and effect is only possible because things don't exist in an impossible way. Voidness means an absence of impossible ways of existing. There is no such thing as independent existence. It's impossible for anything to exist independently, all by itself, unrelated to other things. That's the most basic understanding of voidness. It's not the absence of something that was there and we remove it, it's the absence of something that was never there. There was never such a thing as independent existence.
Okay, so the implication of that is if we want to achieve a result, we have to put in all the causes. That's the implication. The result isn't going to happen all by itself. So you have to translate, in a sense, the understanding of voidness, the understanding of anything in Dharma, to what does it actually mean in practical life. And what it means is if I want to achieve a result, if I want to achieve anything, have to put in the causes, because the result depends on the causes. The result doesn't exist independently by itself. And that's true not just only for dharma attainments, it's true for worldly attainments as well, for anything. You want to achieve something, you have to put in the work. You have to build up the causes. It's not going to happen by itself. Wishing for it isn't going to make it happen. That's why we have the so-called wishing or aspiring state of bodhicitta and the engaged state. It's not enough just to aim for enlightenment, to wish to attain it. We need to actually engage ourselves in the practices that will act as the causes to bring us to this attainment. Now, sometimes we might find these uh, Buddha figures a bit unusual because they have so many faces and arms and legs, and there's so many of them. And we might think from our point of view, why would I want to attain enlightenment in the form of some figure with six arms or 24 arms or 34 arms and so on? Why in the world would I want to do that? This is really weird. Do I want to then be a Buddha with 24 arms? But uh, that's looking at it just from our point of view. Let's look at it from the point of view of a Buddha. Buddhas can appear in any form whatsoever in order to benefit others. It's part of the, uh, what should we say, characteristics of Buddha form bodies. Appear in any form. So, Buddhas appear in the form of these Buddha figures. Why? Because, as I said yesterday, they are, it's a type of infographic that all the, the various arms and legs and so on represent the different realizations on the path, all the different parts of the path. So out of compassion, a Buddha will appear in these various forms to suit different people as a method to be able to help them to integrate all the parts of the path and attain enlightenment. So the only purpose of these Buddha figures is out of the compassion of a Buddha to help us to attain the state of a Buddha ourselves. It's not that I want to become a Buddha and always stand there with 24 arms. That's not the point at all. And that's not what will happen. When you become a Buddha, then you can appear in any form. You're not stuck in this one form of that particular Buddha figure. So I think this is very important to understand when we're working with these figures. Buddha manifests in this form out of compassion to help us integrate, as the strings on the loom, all the different parts of the path. And therefore, we can use it as a method. And we choose whichever type of figure and system appeals to us, in a sense. You know, what fits with our particular stage of development now. 
terms of a beginningless mental continuum, our individual beginningless mental continuum. Okay? Let that sink in for a moment. Look at these Buddha figures, not from our point of view, from the point of view of a Buddha, compassionately wanting to help people to put together all the different parts of the path. It's really a brilliant idea from the part of a Buddha. Infographics. So the result of thinking like this is that instead of thinking of these Buddha figures as weird and they don't really fit us Westerners and it's just some Indian trip and stuff like that, instead of this rather negative attitude toward them, we have a very positive attitude of respect that this is incredible that uh, Buddha thought of this. Incredible. It's important to respect the type of practice that we're doing not think of it as being weird or exotic, mystical, magic. Okay, now let's fill in some more detail. Let's go back to Buddha nature. Buddha nature, as you recall, was uh, referring to the various traits of the family of everybody who can become a Buddha. Various features. That's literally what uh, Buddha nature is referring to. So it's a whole bunch of things. And we have three types of Buddha nature factors. We have the evolving ones, the ones that can evolve, develop, and uh, etc., to uh, become the aspects of the Buddha bodies or enlightenment that arise or that are affected by things that change from moment to moment. The nature stays the same, but they change from moment to moment. Right? So we're referring to things like the network of enlightening forms of a Buddha. You know, the nature stays the same, but in each moment a Buddha can appear in all sorts of different forms. So moment to moment it's changing. What a Buddha teaches is going to be different in every moment, not saying the same thing over and over again. So the evolving factors are what evolves into that and what's going on with the Buddha's mind, omniscient mind in each moment because the objects of a Buddha's mind are changing due to impermanence every moment, then you'd have to say that the awareness is changing every moment, right? All beings, the impermanent, changing moment to moment to moment. Buddha is omniscient, aware of all of them. But because they're changing from moment to moment, what a Buddha is aware of from moment to moment is changing in accordance with the changes of the object. Nature stays the same, of course. Conventional and deepest nature. Then we have the 
abiding. And so these evolving factors are referring to the two networks, the so-called two collections of positive force and deep awareness, the so-called collection of merit and the collection of insight or wisdom, sometimes it's called. And the abiding Buddha nature factors are referring to the nature of the mind, basically. Galupa system, it's referring to the deepest nature of the mind, voidness. The other traditions will add the conventional nature of the mind as well, fine. But uh, because of the void nature of the mind, then we can have the arising of samsara out of the Buddha nature factors, or we can have the uh, arising of enlightenment from them. These Buddha nature factors are imputations on everybody's individual mental continuums. Of course, we can get into a detailed discussion of what actually are they imputed on, but let's not get into too much detail at once. Okay, so on mental continuum, we have these Buddhinate, we have these two networks, and out of them can produce samsaric rebirth or bodies of a Buddha. And because of the abiding nature of the mental continuum of mind, it's the voidness or its conventional nature as well, it can give rise to either of them, these networks. And these Buddha nature factors, these networks and so on, and the mental continuum on which they are imputed, it can be inspired, it can be uplifted, influenced. And that's referring specifically not to you know, be inf you know, inspired by the sunset, but uh, inspired by the great examples of the Buddhas and the teachers, spiritual teachers. So, there's Buddha nature factors. We discussed that already. Now, how does it happen that we get the arising of samsara or enlightenment, nirvana, uh, from these Buddha nature factors, from these two networks. This is important to understand. This brings in the whole discussion of karma. Now, network of positive force. What is positive force? So-called merit. We have uh, two general explanations of uh, karma in the Buddhist uh, teachings. Well, actually three, but uh, the Tibetans study just two of them. There's a third one, which is the Theravada explanation of karma. Different. But uh, within the Tibetan systems, we have uh, a slightly simpler system and a more complex one. The more complex one is the one that we find in the Prasangika system of uh, uh, philosophical tenets, as explained by Tsongkhapa, the Guluk tradition. Uh, it's a variation on, or a development further from the basic Vibhashika presentation in the Abhidharma Kosha, Vasubandhu. So, let's look at this system. What actually constitutes uh, so-called merit, positive force? Well, we can uh, speak in terms of our actions of uh, body and speech, 
And we can also speak in terms of the actions of mind. In terms of our uh, body and speech, the uh, positive force refers to also the karma itself. What is the karma? This is a little bit complex, a little bit subtle. What is the karma here? Karma is something compulsive. Remember, it's important to understand. We want to get rid of it. It's compulsive under the control of disturbing emotions and unawareness or ignorance. Although the Tibetan word for karma is the colloquial word for action, it's not equivalent to just actions. If it were equivalent to actions, then all we had to do to get rid of our karma is to stop doing anything or saying anything, just become like a rock. That is not the meaning of karma. Karma is uh, the compulsiveness of our behavior, compulsiveness of our actions. So compulsive, compulsive means not under our control. You understand what the word compulsive means? You know, compulsive, somebody is going like this, you know, tapping their fingers and, you know, moving their legs and so on. Compulsively, they're not under control of it. It's because of some disturbing state of mind, stress. That's compulsive. Compulsive, always, you know, eating. When, uh, you know, even you're full or something, you, you know, you're in a bad mood, so just compulsively you stuff your mouth. That's compulsive. Or compulsive, always you know, saying um, no to everything, you know, always disagreeing, no matter what somebody says. That's compulsive. We want our behavior to be generated out of compassion, not compulsively out of our disturbing emotions and ignorance. So in this prasangika system, the karma in our physical actions is referring to the compulsive shape that our actions take. Not the actions themselves, but that compulsive shape that uh, always we are um, arguing, not arguing, that's verbal. Always we are, uh, um, you know, there's an insect and then, you know, the shape of our behavior is that always we swat it, we want to kill it. There's a certain shape that it always takes. You know, anything that we don't like, we want to destroy. And the, uh, uh, in terms of our verbal behavior, it's the compulsive sound of our voice. Compulsively, you know, there's this aggressive sound. You know, it, it reveals, these are called revealing forms. It reveals the motivation behind it. Okay, so that, when uh, it compulsively uh, can reveal either a negative emotion or a positive one, mixed with confusion. So for instance, positive emotion would be to want to make everything clean and everything correct. Compulsive is when we become a perfectionist, a fanatic. So somebody who is over and over again compulsively cleaning their house, it's never clean enough. It's a positive emotion that's revealed behind it. You know, you want things to be nice and clean. There's nothing wrong with that. But, you know, there's this perfectionism behind it. It's very neurotic. 
And also, there's unawareness of, you know, well, it's impossible for things to be perfectly clean, impermanence, etc. Or somebody who is what we call a grammar Nazi, somebody who is constantly correcting the grammar of other people, no matter what they say, it's compulsive. Good motivation, they want people to be able to speak clearly, but there's something seriously neurotic behind it that I have to be the one that, you know, it has to be perfect for me, this type of uh, thing. So we have compulsive negative potential, negative force, but also this compulsive positive force. So in terms of, uh, so this is the karma, these are positive force, the uh, compulsive shape of our verbal, act, of our physical actions, the compulsive sound, of our verbal actions. And in terms of mental, it's not the karma, it is the urge that brings on way of thinking. So that's the positive force in the case of our thinking. So that uh, revealing form, let's stick with just the physical and verbal. When you stop doing something, you stop cleaning your house, you stop correcting somebody, then that revealing form brings on what is actually called the positive force. So that's an imputation on the mental continuum. So both the compulsive shape and sound is a positive force, and then, so it has a certain form, and then we have this uh, factor which is imputed on the mind so-called positive force itself. Then there is something else called a non-revealing form, which is a very, very subtle form that is uh, not made of particles, and it uh, is, uh, doesn't reveal the motivation. And that is sort of like a subtle vibration, and it underlies the physical and verbal uh, behavior and continues afterwards on the mental continuum. And it continues on the mental continuum until you very fully decide that I'm no longer gonna act in this constructive way or I'm no longer gonna act in this destructive way. Give it up completely and then you lose this non-revealing form and it turns into, again, an imputation of a positive potential in the case of uh, positive, non-revealing form. So I know that all of that is rather complicated and uh, very difficult to really digest. So let's try to make it a little bit simpler. The point being, however, that the network of positive force covers all of this. So if we want to know what is the network of positive force, we have to know what it is a network of. So. We think of our, just keep it simple, let's keep it with our actions of body and speech. What is this positive force that we have? Well, first of all, it's referring to my compulsive positive behavior. Not the behavior itself, but the compulsive shape that it takes, compulsive shape of my actions and the compulsive sound of my voice. And the subtle vibration that's underlying that. That's the non-revealing form, right? I'm sorry to use this new age 
uh, terminology of a vibration, but that seems to be the closest to what this is talking about. So this is what's happening at the time of when we're actually doing something or saying something. That has a certain positive force to it. From one point of view, we can look at it as a positive force. From another point of view, we can look at it as a positive potential for something to go on in the future. Now, when we stop acting, not, you know, afterwards, what continues as a positive force is, first of all, this vibration, the subtle vibration. It's sort of there. You can get a sense of this if you think of an alcoholic, even when they're not actually drinking. If you're sensitive enough, you can sort of feel a vibration about them that they're an alcoholic, can't you? Something about them that you can feel. That about, is about the closest analogy that I can think of. And we also have what is uh, called the actual karmic force, the nature of like a tendency, and that's an imputation. Two aspects of it. One is the, what comes directly from when you stop acting or speaking, and one that comes when you lose that vibration. You lose that vibration, let's say, when the alcoholic gives up alcohol, comes Alcoholic Anonymous, not going to drink anymore, and when that really is very, very strong, then they lose this subtle vibration of being an alcoholic. That's how you lose these non-revealing forms, but it still becomes a, a potential, a force. They could become an alcoholic again they start drinking again. And all these forces from all these various things network together, and so we can impute on that. I mean, there, as an imputation on that, there's a network. You have to remember, when we talk about imputation, we're not talking about some mental construct. From Sautrantika point of view, this is objective, not something conceptual. Imputation something that we can see non-conceptually. You can know non-conceptually. There are a lot of people here, individual people. I can see individual people, but I can also see a group of people. Group is an imputation on the individuals. Is there a group of people here? Yes. Can I see the group of people? Yes. Is group just something that was made up in my imagination? and projected conceptually? No. I can have a concept of a group, and then that can terrify me. Ooh, I'm sitting in front of a, a group of people and talking to a group. That's my weird idea of a group. But objectively, there is a group of people here. Right? There is a lot of websites, a lot of URLs. Is there a network, you know, the web? World Wide Web? Yes. Is it just a concept? No. World Wide Web is an imputation on all the individual URLs. Similarly, the network of positive force is an imputation on all these individual instances of positive force. Every you know, compulsive act, uh, form, uh, compulsive shape of every action that we've done, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There is such a thing. Nobody is refuting that. 
Now, I can't underline enough how important it is to understand what an imputation is, because the self, me, is an imputation on the aggregates. If we don't understand that, then we can easily fall to the extreme of nihilism, that there's, you know, we deny conventional truth of anything. So all these individual pieces of positive force, all these different types, make a network. They constitute a network of positive force. There's also one of negative force, but that's not part of Buddha nature. So we have this network of positive force. So then the next question is, what does it give rise to? So it all depends on the dedication. If it's not dedicated to anything, it gives rise to samsara. It's dedicated with bodhicitta, can give rise to enlightenment, but it has to be helped by this network of deep awareness and understanding of voidness. Remember, that network of deep awareness is referring to how the mind works. So how the mind works thinking with confusion or how the mind works with correct understanding of voidness. So we want it with the correct understanding of voidness. So samsara, what does, what does this network of positive force uh, ripen into? It ripens into, first of all, physical form of our rebirth. So physical form in each moment, actually, but actually also the rebirth. What type of body are going to have? And that body is a good example of true suffering. It's impermanent. It uh, is in the nature of of suffering, it, you know, the suffering of birth and uh, sickness and old age and death, all these sort of things are going to happen with the body. Gets injured, so big problem, limited body. I mean, think of how much time you have to spend being what uh, Shantideva calls the servant of the body. We have to feed it, we have to clothe it, we have to wash it, we have to put it to sleep. We have to, I mean, there's so many, so much that is taking up our time, just taking care of this body. We are the servant, the slave of it. I mean, the emotional feeling of renunciation is boring. This is so boring, having to do this over and over again. You know, I'm going to have to brush my teeth 100,000 times, you know, in this lifetime or more. I mean, that's really boring. Buddha doesn't have to brush his teeth. So, anyway, to use silly examples, sometimes that helps. Next thing that, it, uh, that this, this network ripens into is a feeling of happiness. But that happiness uh, is in the nature of the cause of suffering, the second noble truth. Because that happiness is something that we thirst to, you know, that, uh, I don't want it to go away, but of course it is going to go away because it's impermanent. And, um, you know, it never satisfies and so on. So it's a troublemaker, our ordinary type of happiness. And it also ripens, this network ripens into uh, repeating similar type of behavior to what we did before. So compulsively, the shape of our physical actions repeats and the sound of our voice, the compulsive sound of our voice repeats and the compulsive from thinking, the compulsive urge to worry, the compulsive urge to have all sorts of you know, crazy ideas, and so on. 
that comes from it. So similar to what we had before. And also what comes from it is the type of environment that we're going to find ourselves in that is going to support that type of behavior, these things happening to us. So being in a very violent society or being in a very poor country here, it's, it's referring to positive things. So being in a, what should we say, country like, I mean, I live in Germany where everything is, you know, supposed to be orderly and clean, you know, alles in Ordnung, everything is under control. And so that uh, uh, is an environment which encourages people to be fanatics, you know, perfectionists, and there's all sorts of trouble with uh, this idea of being perfect. So it's an environment that encourages that. Okay, so that is samsaric package that uh, ripens from our uh, network of positive karmic force. And it's supported by our deep awareness, our network of deep awareness mixed with confusion. Our mind is mixed with this unawareness, confusion about how I exist, how everything exists. And so that affects this, uh, this uh, network of positive karmic force to give rise to nice samsara, a neurotic. So, network of positive force, add to it no dedication to bodhicitta, just our worldly aims, you know, we want to get rich, we want to, you know, these sort of things. And on the side of the network of deep awareness, you know, everything that we do, our mind is completely filled with confusion, we have wrong idea of how we exist and everything exists. The combination of that, unawareness and worldly aims, samsaric aims, is what is going to be uh, affect that network of positive force to give rise to samsara and more confusion out of that network of deep awareness. So now, let's add to the pot here, to our formula, bodhicitta and some understanding of voidness and what comes out of this network of positive force. Instead of a limited body, we get the physical body of a Buddha, right? All the form bodies of a, of a Buddha. Instead of uh, our happiness, which is mixed with confusion and never satisfies and so on, we get the blissful mind of a Buddha. Instead of compulsive behavior, we get the enlightening activity of a Buddha always helping others. Instead of an environment which just encourages uh, compulsive behavior, samsaric behavior, we get an environment of a pure land in which everything is conducive for everybody becoming enlightened. So all these, these so-called four purities of body, enjoyment, so that's bliss, the behavior, and the uh, environment, those parallel what ripens from karma. Exactly the same structure as what ripens from karma, as what comes in terms of these Buddha nature factors giving rise to enlightenment. The only difference is whether or not there's bodhicitta and whether there's not there's an understanding of voidness. And of course, renunciation. You don't want it to give rise to samsara. And bodhicitta, you want it to give rise to enlightenment. So, as a method for bringing us to that 
enlightened state from our Buddha nature factors, we imagine now that we have something similar to what we would have as a Buddha. So we imagine that we have a body of a Buddha. So this Buddha figure, we imagine that we enjoy the offerings and so on with blissful mind, not mixed with confusion. We imagine that we have this enlightening activity that we benefit all beings. And we imagine that all around us is a pure land of a mandala. Do you follow that? This is the essence of what uh, this uh, tantra practice is all about. We are practicing now something similar to the result in terms of body, enjoyment, activity, and environment so that, like a rehearsal, it will bring us closer to the result. Why? Because we can use the Buddha figure to integrate bodhicitta and renunciation and voidness and four immeasurables and all the different things of the path. So, bodhicitta. You have to understand what bodhicitta is so that it fits, so that we understand how it fits into everything that we have just discussed. Bodhicitta is not the same as love and compassion. Love and compassion bring on bodhicitta, but they're not the same. Bodhicitta, because of our love and compassion, you know, we want everybody to be happy, not to be unhappy. We want to do something about it. We have the exceptional resolve in which we now make the firm decision, I'm definitely going to do something about it. Then bodhicitta comes after that. Bodhicitta is aimed at our own individual enlightenments, which have not yet happened. Like next year or tomorrow has not yet happened. But there is such a thing as tomorrow or next year. But tomorrow is not happening today. So similarly, our own individual enlightenments are not happening now. But it's something that we can think about, like you can think about tomorrow. And we can aim for it, like I'm aiming to do something tomorrow. And that not yet happening of our enlightenment is imputed on the Buddha nature factors. So Buddha nature factors have one aspect that can give rise to that enlightenment when all the other contributing factors are complete has the potential. That's why it's called a potential. So that potential, think about it. We have this network. That network, it's like World Wide Web. It's a network. It has the potential to give rise to a website of pornography or violence, or it has the potential to give rise to some beautiful, you know, enlightened Buddhist teaching. There's both potentials, right? So everything is, you know, so our network of positive force can give rise to, you know, a nice samsara, you know, will be a good, you know, perfectionist, or it can give rise to enlightenment. Both potentials, it all depends on bodhicitta and voidness and renunciation. So now, we want to focus on something that's not yet happening. So 
I want to focus on tomorrow. Tomorrow is not yet happening, but tomorrow I'm going to take an airplane back to Berlin. So I can picture that in my mind, going to the airport, sitting on the plane, and so on. So that represents the not yet happening of my return, my airplane ride back to Berlin. And I can prepare for that. You know, I'm going to have to pack my bag, et cetera, et cetera. Similarly, how do we represent our not yet happening enlightenment so that we can aim for it with bodhicitta, we can focus on it? We do that by imagining that already I am in the form of this Buddha, Buddha figure. I already enjoy things without confusion, these offerings that we have in the practices. I have a, a, a enlightening activity, you know, all these lights go out for me and I'm helping everybody. My, my voice is in the form of mantras. Uh, environment around me is a pure land, with, you know, everybody's, you know, everybody's practicing dharma and so on. I imagine that. That represents my not yet happening enlightenment. And with bodhicitta, I focus on that. This is what I want to attain. So, brilliant, brilliant idea. And me, as an imputation on whole sequence of events, can also be imputed on that not yet happening enlightenment. Easiest example to understand that is think of a series of photos of yourself from when you were a baby through your childhood, teenage years, adult years, you know, every few years all the way up until now. They're all me, but they look completely different. Body is different, but still it's me. Me is an imputation on all of these. And likewise, you could have photos of what you might look like as a really old person. You could have photos of what past lifetimes, future lifetimes, enlightened Buddha. All of them are just a larger series of photographs, aren't they? So, me is an imputation on that entire stream of continuity, all of samsara and into enlightenment as well. It is a valid imputation of me on that enlightenment as represented by the Buddha figure, but it's not yet happening. And all of that is true because of the voidness of the self. There's nothing inside each of these photographs of me that makes it me. It's not that, you know, on the back of the photograph it's written my name. And that makes it me. There's nothing on the side of that. Nevertheless, it's correct that that's me. So, we've covered a lot, so let us review it in a very simple form. We have these two factors. I mean, these two evolving factors, the two networks, positive force, deep awareness. And that positive force from the shape of our actions, the sound of our voice, uh, all these uh, you know, subtle vibrations and so on, all of that, worldly aims and no understanding of voidness, confusion, gives rise to ordinary body, ordinary happiness, ordinary neurotic behavior, ordinary 
environment that supports neurotic behavior. That's samsara, over and over and over again. Right? So we we're just filling in a little bit detail in that general visualization that we had yesterday. Remember, we had a ball, you know, the, the, the networks, and it gave rise to another ball, which was samsara, and we didn't want that. Instead, it goes up to this ball up here, which is uh, enlightenment through the ball of uh, the uh, Buddha figures. So now we fill in some detail, this ball of these uh, two enlightening networks. Well, we know what it's made up of. And what is it giving rise to in samsara? So now we see what's well, giving rise to a body and you know, happiness and compulsive behavior and a uh, uh, difficult environment. Add bodhicitta and the understanding of voidness to the formula and gives rise to up here you know, in this bubble, we have uh, body of a Buddha, bliss of a Buddha, activity of a Buddha, and the environment of a Buddha, pure land. And here in the bubble of our practice, the path, we have something that represents what we want to achieve. So the body of a Buddha figure, you know, our imagination, a blissful understanding without confusion of offerings and so on, enlightening activity, you know, all these lights going out and helping everybody, and a pure environment, mandala. All of these are parallel. Ordinary body, sickness and old age, death, etc. Body of a Buddha figure, physical body of a Buddha. Ordinary speech, you know, don't know what we're saying, nobody understands us. Mantra, lightning speech of a Buddha. Our ordinary happiness never lasts, doesn't satisfy. In our imagination, a pure happiness of enjoying the offerings and blissful mind of a Buddha. Our compulsive behavior, our uh, imagining that we're helping all beings and the enlightened activity of a Buddha. Our ordinary polluted environment, our imagination of a, of a pure mandala and so on and pure land of a Buddha our confusion, unawareness of uh, how things exist, our conceptual or non-conceptual cognition of voidness, and then the full simultaneous cognition of the two truths, omniscient mind of a Buddha. So it's all parallel. This parallelism is very important to understand. So what we want is instead of these Buddha nature factors giving rise to this basis level, which is samsara, which is terrible, boring, we want it to give rise to the resultant level. And to do that, because that resultant level is not yet happening, this Buddhahood is not yet happening, we imagine now something similar. So that's the path. And that's the tantra practice. And practicing now, similar to what we will attain in the future, is a more efficient way of attaining that, like a rehearsal for a drama in the theater. So take a moment to try to just appreciate the parallel that is here between the basis, path, and result. We're always working with Buddha nature. 
There's two networks. You want to strengthen them more and more. And it can be influenced, stimulated, through the inspiration of teacher, Buddhas, three jewels of refuge, etc. Okay, so we end with a de little dedication. Whatever positive force, whatever understanding has come from this, may it go deeper and deeper and act as a cause for all beings to attain the enlightened state of a Buddha for the benefit of all. <laughs>